our guest today, I'm very excited to have Christina Guida from, she's an associate lawyer with Green and Spiegel LLP in Toronto. Green and Spiegel is the largest and oldest immigration law firm in Canada. Christina advises clients on Canadian immigration and citizenship matters. And today we're gonna to be talking about how those immigration matters influence employment relationships. I'm very excited to have you. So Christina, thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be on the show. I'm looking forward to the discussion, and uh, I have to say, as I think viewers know, runner law practices employment law exclusively, uh, but of course we often encounter workplace immigration issues, and we all have some knowledge of those issues, but the reality is when they get more complex than, than basic questions, we need to turn to an expert like yourself who can really guide us in the right direction. And usually the first question we get is we have an employer client who is hiring and they want to understand whether they can hire someone who doesn't live in Canada or whether they're required to hire a Canadian citizen or someone who is legally entitled to work in Canada. So this I know can lead to a long discussion. And I have to say, by the way, Christina, Last month, our guest was the first one to ever fire away instead of me getting to fire away at the end. This month, you're the first guest to ever have a PowerPoint prepared. So <laughs> I promise everyone, we're not gonna let Christina just talk and go through the PowerPoint for 20 minutes, but we do have some slides that I think are very careful, are very helpful as we go through some of the more uh, more complicated issues. So Christina, let's, let's start with the question of when can you hire a foreign individual as opposed to Canadian um, well, Stuart, that's a good question. It's a lot of questions that our um, that our clients ask us specifically in the HR field and employment field. So, from an immigration perspective, um, Canada Immigration wants us to be hiring Canadians and permanent residents. Um, but the reality is, we know that the job markets um, we always we don't always find the talent that we're looking for. Um, and specifically, for instance, now in the tech field, um, there's a shortage of workers. So, um, a lot of us do rely on foreign workers to come in. Um, so what employers should be looking for at, at a very you know, minimal level is to make sure that they actually have the proper work authorization. So a lot of um, our clients and a lot of HR professionals, they will come to us and say, Christina, I have this individual. I'm not sure if I'm able to hire them. So the first question I ask them is, do they have a valid work permit? A lot of HR professionals and employers don't know if they have a work permit, but there's a trick that we always tell our clients is if their SIN number starts with a nine, um, they're likely in Canada um, on a temporary, some sort of temporary status. So mm -hmm. that's the first indication. So if it's a nine series, then they're here temporarily. So okay, that's a good tip. And so I'll tell yes. you, you know, what we typically do, you know, almost every contract we draft for our clients has a, has a bunch of conditions typically. And one of them is the employee or the potential employee must be legally entitled to work in Canada, which mm -hmm. sounds great. And we work <laughs> that way because we don't want to offend human rights legislation. So you can't discriminate based on country of origin or citizenship. But again, I don't think most employment lawyers, I don't think most HR professionals really know what legally entitled to work in Canada means. Uh, so maybe you can take us through what the different types of, of permits or employees that you would encounter would be. Yeah, so if we um, take a look at the um, second slide that I prepared, um, the first thing that we should be looking at um, when you have a foreign worker that comes in is to understand the different types of visas. So the fundamental one that we're looking for for certain people um, in certain countries, um, if we go to the temporary resident visas, is that certain countries require temporary resident visas. Um, so that's kind of Canada Immigration's first way of, of looking at a candidate. 
So people who require temporary resident visas are typically someone from China or India, places like that. Um, so what they have in their passports is essentially a visa that's affixed to their passport, where the Canadian government's already done a pre-clearance check to see if they're able to come to Canada and board the plane. So certain countries require the TRVs, and then there's non-visa required countries, and that's places like you know the United Kingdom, um, France, Italy, etc. So those are the first indications um, to look for. And this temporary resident visas, um, workers require them, um, tourists require them, and business visitors require them. So, so just, I'm sorry to cut you off. Just so I'm no, clear. no, go ahead. Yeah. So this is, this is a temporary resident visa. This has nothing to do with a job or a particular job opportunity or anything like that. No, this is basically what allows that individual to board a plane to come to Canada. Okay, so when they're here in Canada, then it's figuring out what their actual status while they're here in Canada is. Are they here as a tourist? So that's typically a visitor visa. Um, so someone from China, for instance, would have done this visa prior to coming into Canada. So as an employer, um, taking a look at this visa, asking for a copy of their passport is always a good thing to, um, to start off with, specifically if there's that provision within the employment contract to say you need valid status in Canada. So how do you figure out if they have valid status? One of the things to look for is this visa affixed to their passport. And that visa will give you an indication if they're here as a tourist, um, if they're here as a business visitor, or if they're here as a work permit, or even sometimes a student. And I'll go through that a little bit later on when we're talking about the different permits. Perfect. So let me stop you for there for one second. So assuming that the job applicant doesn't you know, readily hand over their passport, uh, how would the HR or the hiring person even know to ask for the visa? Um, as I said, when you start the job off and there's a, there's a, a SIN card that starts with a nine, that's when you start asking the questions. So you start asking them, what's your status in Canada? Um, if they say I'm here as a worker, then you ask for a copy of the work permit. Um, Canada, anytime someone has a work permit or even a study permit, it will be printed out on this very beautiful, colorful paper <laughs> that will say study permit or work permit, and it has the individual's name and the validity of the work permit or the study permit. So these are the types of documents that HR should be asking for. Um, the Canadian government, if someone has status in Canada, they will have um, supporting documentation to confirm what that status will be. And so when you, just so we're all clear, when you say status in Canada, what, 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 what does that mean? So status, as I said before, you can either be here as a tourist, so as a visitor, you can be here as a business visitor, um, you can be here as a student, or you can be here as a worker. And just so we're all clear on the contrast, for a Canadian resident, they would just produce their SIN card and that would be the end of it, or is there anything more they would have? Exactly. So a resident who would just, when, when you become a permanent resident of Canada, you're given a permanent SIN card so that the series will start in a five or a six, just like it would for a Canadian citizen. So the, the number one marker in all of this is a, is a nine series SIN card. That's the easiest indication. Got it. Okay. And then you talked a bit about, you know, the different types of work perm permits or study permits. So maybe you can, mm -hmm. maybe now's a good time to go through those. We're all, all clear on the different types you might encounter when you're, uh, when you're hiring. Yeah, so if we go to slide three, um, when we're talking about workers, sometimes we have individuals that are coming in um, as business visitors. So they say, I'm coming in to do meetings, let's say, um, you know, coming in to meet with one of their vendors. And then in that process, um, you know, they're introduced to a Canadian employer who's interested in having that person come into Canada. So um, when it comes to business visitors, what you have to understand is they're just coming into Canada to do business. 
So it's not entering the Canadian labor market. It's basically your connections and everything is outside of Canada. Um, and you're only coming into Canada for a temporary basis. Um, so what can, if we go to slide four, what can business visitors do and not do? Um, business visitors can attend meetings, they can attend trainings, but they cannot enter the Canadian labor market. So what that means is a lot of our clients will say, well, they're coming in to just consult us or they're coming in to give me ideas on how I can improve my business. They're here as business visitors. They're attending meetings. I think they're a business visitor. Um, it's a slippery slope because you can come in to do a business meeting, no problem, meet a prospective client. But when they start advising you on your company, for instance, trying to figure out ways to do cost benefit or to make the production or the operation more efficient, that transfers into the work area. Um, so the visa that they're currently on does not permit them to do that type of work. So at that point, you would be contacting, you know, an immigration professional or consulting the immigration website to figure out how to facilitate a work permit to get them to actually start consulting in your business. So how does that work? I know, you know, we have clients all the time or the head offices in the U.S. or Europe, perhaps. And, you know, a member of senior management is over in Canada once a month for regular meetings. Uh, yes. Obviously advising on how to run the company because that's their job. Uh, mm -hmm. actually, is that a business visitor or is that something different? Yeah, so when we have, we have a lot of CEOs coming in um, to do exactly that. You know, they're, they just have a small branch in Canada and they're coming in to check up on the operation. There's no issue with that because his, his or her day-to-day -day activities are outside of Canada. And they're just coming in to take a look to make sure that everything's going, running well, meeting with the, let's say, new management or a new member of the team. So there's no issue with that. But if he, were, he or she would be coming into Canada and they start doing their day-to-day -day work. For instance, you know, they start looking at, um, you know, they're, they're doing meetings with senior management to come up with strategies or they're, um, you know, involved in the hiring and firing of the individuals here in Canada. Um, if they're meeting with the clients or, you know, doing uh, forecasting, that kind of stuff, that to me is work. And the more prudent route would be to get this individual a work permit. Okay, that, well, that's very interesting. I think that definitely is the case sometimes. Uh, and sometimes we see situations, you know, depending on the nature of the organization, where there might be an office set aside. So the CEO may have an office in Toronto, even though they're only here one day a year. I mean, would mm -hmm. that change anything if they're kind of more established in, in Canada? Yeah, so one of the things, if they're coming in once a year um, and they're coming in to do most of those business visitor activities, there's no need for a work permit. Um, but what does trigger the need for a work permit and what I typically advise my clients on, if, if they're coming in on a monthly basis um, or they're coming in bi-weekly or it's a frequency of more than a handful of times a year, um, my strategy has always been let's get a work permit because it's better to be safe than sorry because border officials start to notice that the travel um, is more frequent than not and then they start asking questions and most ceos and and you know senior management they're you know everyone's asking answering the questions honestly um sometimes a certain word is used specifically the word work and then that triggers in the border officials it's time to get the proper authorization so um as i said it's always more if if Travel is going to be frequent, um, specifically if you're opening up a newer branch in Canada or it's a new operation, the, the more prudent route is to get an actual work permit for that individual. Got it. And I'm going to ask you in a minute to go through the different types of work permits, which I guess Absolutely. is Absolutely. But before you do that, uh, 
I am curious. So in that scenario, the CEO is coming to Canada, let's say once a month, twice a month, whatever it might be. Uh, but they're not, they're not employed by the Canadian organization. They're not on the Canadian payroll. Uh, but you're saying better safe than sorry, work for it. Is there ever a situation where that permit is denied? Um, I mean, it can be denied, denied in the sense of they don't qualify for any, any of the underlying work permit categories. Um, a lot of the times in 2016, the Canadian government implemented a, that something that's called an employer portal, where in essence, an offer of employment has to be submitted through the Canadian government's portal pre-entry into Canada. So a lot of the times when the CEOs, um, you know, present themselves to the border and they get some, you know, an officer asking them a few more questions and it's determined that they do need a work permit, then they require that employer portal offer of employment. So they're stuck at the border until that happens. So a lot of the times we will get our clients calling us and saying, you know, hi, Christina, I have so-and-so at the border. He came up. Um, he's having issues with the officer. Help us. So at that point, we're putting together the work permit um, as the individual is at the border. So our line of business, we're able to do that fairly easily because we know how to do it. That's our business. We, we register the portals, all of that. But for companies that don't have legal counsel, it becomes challenging. And a lot of the times, the officers may be nice and just let them in for a day or two and, you know, put a, you must leave Canada by this date notation on their passport. And then other times, it's a bit more difficult than that CEO or individual has to find a flight back to where they came from, unfortunately. Interesting. And so I'm going to get to the different types of work permits in a second, but I have to say I'm curious. So if, if that yeah. notation is put on the passport, they must leave, what are we today? Or Tuesday today. So let's say the notation says, must leave by Thursday, and the person doesn't. I mean, I, I'm assuming they don't literally go and, and find them, do they? They don't literally find them, but um, the Canadian government, and especially with the U.S., there's a lot of information sharing. Um, so, I mean, I always... To avoid any further difficulties the next time they want to enter Canada, um, leave when Canada Border Services asks you to. <laughs> and then contact <laughs> exactly. someone to help you. The government tells you to do something, you probably... Exactly. Now, now, there's certain things that, you know, the law does allow us to extend them or to do a change of conditions. And it's all very technical. Um, but on a, on a very general note, if they've asked you to leave by a certain date, you should. And then you should be consulting with someone to figure out what's the best route to get them back into Canada with the proper authorization. Right. And that's when we call someone like you who can take care of that fairly Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, let's look at slide five because I want to make sure people understand the different types of work permits because I will fully admit I didn't appreciate this list that you provided uh, in so much detail. So maybe you can take us through that. And I want to talk about what happens when you have somebody here on a work permit and, and issues that can arise there. Yeah. So an important to distinction to understand and when an employer is looking at a work permit, it's important to understand the different types of work permits. And in Canada, we have something that's called an open work permit and a closed work permit. So the first few, the first three points um, on the slide, in essence, those are open work permits. So what open means is that there's not one particular employer, but that individual can work for whomever they like. Um, so one of the most typical types of open work permits that our clients deal with are someone who's on a postgraduate work permit. So that's someone who's studied in Canada, and then after they've completed their studies, they're eligible for a work permit for the duration of their studies. So if you have an individual who's done, let's say, a BA at York University for a four-year program, um, they would be eligible for a three-year work permit, open work permit, to work with whatever employer they like. 
Um, it's actually a great mention. I, and when I get my chance to fire away at the end of the show, I'm going to be talking about a recent uh, HR uh, Human Rights Tribunal case where an individual was on one of those permits as a student and was not allowed to, uh, or not given a job because they didn't have the right to work here. Yes. So we're going to yes. talk about that. Uh, <laughs> what about uh, on, on your list on slide five, you've got the intra-company transfers. So I think that's yep. obvious. But in that case, if they're coming to Canada to work, it would only be for that company. Absolutely. So an intra-company transfer would apply to that CEO we talked about in our first example, who's basically coming here into Canada to do work on an intermittent basis. So an intra-company transfer requires that that individual work for the foreign entity for at least one year prior to their transfer to Canada. So in putting together the work permit, we would prove that they're, they've worked at the, let's say, the U.S. company for one year and now are being transferred to the Canadian company either on a, let's say, a two-year period or on an intermittent basis over a two-year period. Got it. And then I know at the bottom of this slide, you refer to the labor market impact assessment, which I know we are <laughs> talking about. So and my understanding, simplistic as it might be, is that that's how you justify hiring someone from out of the country as opposed to hiring a Canadian. Um, yes. Explain it in a bit more, a bit more technical detail. No, I mean that's that in essence is exactly what it is. So it's a labor market impact assessment is basically a market certification um, to prove to the government that you've tried to um, secure um, a Canadian or permanent resident to fill that position, but have been unable to either because there's a labor shortage or um, this particular individual, the foreign worker, has a specialization that you can't find in the Canadian labor market. Um, so that it, that requires advertising for a four-week period, uh, trying to find somebody, um, and then in that exercise and not being able to find that person, then you're telling the government, okay, I need this foreign worker to work for me for, let's say, a two-year period. So, okay, that's interesting. So can you specify when you're asking for a work permit, can you specify the, the length of time? The length of time. So, I mean, the length of time for the duration of the work permit is basically how long we can prove to the government that you require this person. So if it's, um, for instance, you know, a big insurance company and you need the CEO of the company to come in, it's, I, we're not going to give you much trouble in trying to prove a two-year need. Um, but let's say it's a, a furniture company and you're just opening up um, into the Canadian market, um, you're going to have to be able to demonstrate that there's going to be enough work for a two-year period. And sometimes, um, and how you demonstrate that is, you know, uh, contracts with prospective clients um, or, you know, being part of expo shows, et cetera. But sometimes the government isn't satisfied that there's actually a need for a two-year period, so they'll limit it to a one-year period. And then at that point, we'd have to explore other options in extending the work permit or doing a new labor market impact assessment. So what about when you're hiring someone and as far as you're concerned, this is permanent, you know, they probably would be in that role for 10 or 15 years as long as they're, they're willing to. What do you do in that yeah. case? So when, when completing a labor market impact assessment, one of the things that the government is looking for is that you're going to be transferring the foreign workers' knowledge um, to the Canadian market. So it's called a transition plan. So how are we going to transition that foreign worker into either a permanent position um, within the company or transition their knowledge to the Canadian labor market. Um, so a lot of times, um, one of the transition plans of, that clients commit to is that they are going to support that individual in obtaining permanent residency. So when the two years is up, um, that person will either already become a permanent resident or in the process of becoming a permanent resident. 
Got it. Okay. Now turning things around a little bit, let's say you hire that person and six months, right? No, let's assume they get a two year uh, work permit and mm-hmm. six months or a year in, you decide, you know what, this isn't really the right person for us. Uh, I often get this question, can we let them go? And if we do let them go, what happens? Yep. I mean, we get that question all the time um, from our corporate clients, even from our small businesses. Um, and in essence, from an immigration perspective, um, you have the right to um, to let that individual go. Um, so, I mean, whether it be, um, you know, it, it's not working out, there's a performance issue, something like that, they would obviously come to you to consult on what those options are. Um, but um, from an immigration perspective, it's just a matter of notifying um, Immigration and Service Canada that that individual is no longer employed with you. But there's no obligation on an employer to maintain um, that employment relationship. Now, on a personal note, and just out of common courtesy, so, you know, some employers know that some people have transitioned their lives and they'll support them as far as permanent residency. But um, if it's really not working out, then the employer has absolute right um, to, to terminate that, that relationship from an immigration perspective. And in that case, if they do terminate the relationship, does that mean the person has to go back to their country of origin? Well, it's a, it's an interesting subject. So if they're on an open work permit, um, they don't need to to leave um, because again, they're open to work with whomever they please. Um, there's not one specific employer tying them to the work. Um, if they're doing, let's say, a labor market impact assessment and it's a closed work permit, in that case, um, the individual is not able to work for anyone else. Um, they don't have to leave Canada, but they kind of they're in a limbo where I essentially tell the foreign worker, you're basically sitting on your hands. Um, you're, you, you, know, you can be actively looking for a job, um, but you can't be working until you get the proper authorization to work for that other individual. Got it. Uh, now, what about if you have this individual, let's say they're here on a one-year one work permit and you are happy with them, you'd like them to keep working, but the permit expires. Uh, as an employer, what are your obligations at that point? Um, well, at that point, it's trying to figure out if that person qualifies for permanent residency um, and then trying to get them to apply for permanent residency and hopefully submitting the permanent residency application before the work permit expires, that one-year work permit expires, because then at that point, you can bridge, it's called a bridging open work permit, where the foreign worker can now continue to work in Canada while their permanent residency is in process. Um, if that's not possible, because sometimes the timing on things just doesn't work out, um, then they have the option of looking at the other categories that I have listed on the slide. Um, for instance, you know, looking at maybe a, a free trade agreement work permit or an LMIA-based work permit or a young professional's work permit. But I would say 60% of applicants on a one-year work permit and wanting to extend them is going to require a labor market impact assessment. Got it. Okay, that's that's really helpful. And I'm going to switch gear just because uh, we're, we're almost already at the, uh, out of time. Um, talking about cross, crossing the border, this is something that comes up a lot. In the <laughs> protection or privacy, and you get to the border to go into the U.S., for example, can the border agent insist that you unlock your laptop and, and go through your data? Uh, and what happens if that's what the agent says? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know if you've been following it in the news, but that recently happened to a lawyer um, who was crossing the border and was asked to produce his his password. And he said, well, I have client confidential information there. I, I can't do it. And at that point, CBSA seized his laptop. So he's now dealing with that. Um, the advice I give my clients is um, 
the Canada Border Services has wide encompassing powers. So even us as citizens, um, they're able to ask to look at our phones, um, to look at our um, laptops. So when a foreign worker comes in, I tell them to be very vigilant of that. Um, and then that the the ability of the Canada Border Services Agency to look at your phone and your and your um, laptop comes into play when we're tr when I'm saying there's that fine line between a business visitor and a worker. So if there's that you know the officer has is inclined to think that that individual is coming into Canada to work, that's when they're going to be asking to look at the emails, to look at the um, you know the the content on the laptops because if if you have an email between you and your manager saying i'm coming in to do you know we're coming in to do our forecasting reports i'm coming in to do this i'm coming in to do that and that shows that it's actual work then that's when that individual gets into trouble so i i those are some of the things that i advise my clients on when they're they're trying to determine whether to come in as a business visitor or a worker Got it. Now, I mean, you know, our firm is almost entirely paperless and our systems are all cloud-based. So, I mean, if someone wants to look at my laptop now, they can go for it. There's almost nothing on it. Uh, but could a border services agent go one step further and say, I want your login credentials for these cloud-based systems? Yes. And the particular case that I was talking to you about, about that council, um, he, he was asked to produce his passwords to open up his laptop, um, at which point he refused and the Canada Border Services Agency confiscated um, his laptop and said it was going to be taken for further investigation. So that, that he's still litigating that and obviously had serious issues with the fact that the Canada Border Services did that. But it, it's important for us to know that they do have the power to do that. Got it. So you really, you can't, well, obviously this lawyer in particular did and he's litigating it, but generally speaking, would your advice be that if you're asked to do so that you just comply? Yes. Unless again, in those cases, in his particular case, there is confidential information. So in general, yes. Um, but I, I'd be interested to see how this is, how this is litigated and, and what the outcome is. Cause I think it's important for all of us to know, especially as lawyers um, to protect our clients information. Absolutely. So yeah, we'll be interested to see how that plays out. So last topic before we uh, we have to move on and I get my chance to fire away, uh, cannabis. Of course, uh, as we all know, cannabis was legalized in Canada uh, last fall, of course, in the US, at least most states not. And I think we've all heard these rumors that people who have past convictions for cannabis use or even are involved in the cannabis industry uh, could be refused entry into the US. So I know this, we're talking about going from Canada into the US, but do you have any comments on what people should be aware of if they have any connection to the cannabis industry and then want to go into the US? Um, it's something It's something that um, people should be aware of, especially people who are involved um, even you know, at an arm length distance from cannabis use, or let's say they've invested in a company or they're on a board of directors of a cannabis company and they're going into the United States, they should know that there are implications involved in that um, and the U.S. can deny you entry. So um, employees, Canadian employees sending their um, employees, um, uh, sorry, Canadian employers sending their employees to the United States should be aware of this because it is potentially putting their employees at risk um, and being denied entry into the United States. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for, uh, for adding that. I think that causes a lot of people concern because as you said, they could just be a shareholder. Uh, not even someone active in the company and all of a sudden they may not be able to go on vacation in the States or, or anything else. Uh, so, so it's definitely something to be aware of. Uh, unfortunately, we're almost out of time, Christina. Anything that you want to add to what we've already talked about? 
Um, no, I think just from employers just have to be mindful and ask for the documentation um, from the prospective employees, uh, be it the SIM card copies of their work permits and whatnot, and just be mindful of the expiration dates on that documentation um, because getting getting it extended is uh, a lot of the times it's just it's logistically and the timing of all of that, getting it done sooner than later is always the best part, especially if you're interested in having this employee stay with you long-term. Great, well, listen, Christina, thank you very much again for joining us and for preparing the, the uh, PowerPoint. Uh, <laughs> learn more about Christina and her firm, Green and Spiegel. You can check out their website. It's www.gands.com. It's G-A-N-D-S.com. Thanks again for joining us. And uh, Rob, I guess now's my, uh, my chance to fire away. Okay, so now is my chance to fire away. And my topic today is don't let you search for the right human impact upon someone's human rights. And full credit to Rebecca for that really clever title, which I plan to reuse uh, probably many, many times in the future. So. I'm going to start off by assuming that nobody watching will deliberately discriminate against an applicant on the basis of things like race, gender, disability, or anything else covered by human rights legislation. So my message today is that you need to make sure you're not inadvertently discriminating against people on those basis. I know that sounds a little strange, but the reality is we see this all the time where people have no intent to discriminate against groups that are traditionally disadvantaged, but they have rules or policies in place which have the same effect. Classic example is a workplace that's on the second floor of a building. There's no elevator, there's no ramp. They have a job applicant who's in a wheelchair. And they all realize very quickly there's a physical impediment to them working when the individual says, well, is there any form of accommodation you could offer? Could I work from home, for example? The knee-jerk reaction is, no, we need all of our employees to be here physically without ever really giving any consideration to whether that's really a requirement, whether you could accommodate them. Similar, we often, you know, so in that case, you may have as well have had a job posting that says applicants in wheelchairs need not apply, even though it didn't really say that, because that's the effect. Similarly, if you have a requirement, if you're in a retail operation, for example, requirement that individuals must be able to work on Saturdays every now and again, you are now preventing anyone who has their religious Sabbath on a Saturday from applying for the job. And again, we often see this, and the response is that's just the way things work around here. Again, no consideration about whether that's required in 2019, when no consideration about whether they could be accommodated. Um, and the reality is, if you are confronted with this and accused of discriminating and your response is, well, that's just the way we've always done it, that's not gonna get you very far. Uh, in season two, episode four of Fire Away, I was speaking with Christina Guida, Guida about uh, immigration and employment issues, and we, indirectly referenced the recent uh, Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario decision involving Imperial Oil. Uh, and so I want to talk about that really briefly because it's an interesting example of where citizenship became a factor. In that case, we had the applicant, Mr. Hasib, who was applying for a permanent full-time position with Imperial Oil. At the time, he was an international student at McGill uh, with a student visa. And when he graduated, he would now obtain a three-year work permit. Uh, and we talked about that briefly with Christina. The anticipation was that, that during that three-year period, he would obtain permanent residency, and his evidence was that he had every intention of staying in Canada and working here, and he wanted this job with Imperial Oil to be a permanent job. Problem, of course, is that Imperial Oil had a policy in place which said that applicants for graduate engineer positions had to be eligible to work in Canada on a permanent basis. 
And those, that's a key phrase right there. Because of course, most people, when we work with our clients and we put together employment contracts, there's conditions and it almost always says the applicant must be legally entitled to work in Canada. And that's fine. That doesn't breach human rights. Adding on on a permanent basis may well, and according to the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario, it does. Uh, in this case, it's interesting how it played out. So uh, obviously Mr. Hasib spoke with some more senior students who've gone through the process and was told, if you tell them you are not legally entitled to work in Canada on a permanent basis, you're not gonna get the job. He'd been coached on that. He went for the interview. He was asked, according to the evidence, several times whether he was eligible to work in Canada on a permanent basis, and he lied. He said he was. And not only did he get the job offer, he was actually uh, ranked first among the candidates got the job offer, but it had that same condition again. You must be illegally entitled to work in Canada on a permanent basis. When he couldn't provide proof that he was, the job offer was rescinded, and Imperial Oil essentially said that you're welcome to reapply if and when you become eligible in the future. So Mr. Hasee brought a claim to the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario saying he'd been discriminated against on the basis of his citizenship. Imperial Oil defended really on two bases. One was that it was a bona fide occupational requirement. And their argument essentially was that they would suffer undue hardship if they had to incur the costs of training applicants only to have them leave when their work per permit expired. Their second argument was that he, the, the failure to hire him was not because of his citizenship, it was because of his dishonesty. He lied in the application process, therefore they couldn't trust him. Both arguments failed. What the Human Rights Tribunal found was that really what this came down to was that if he was a Canadian citizen, he would have been hired. Because he wasn't, he was discriminated against. And therefore, the Imperial Oil in that case was on the hook for breach of the Human Rights Code. And this is what we often see. We, we rarely see those job postings that say immigrants need not apply. But we often see policies or rules or requirements that indirectly discriminate against people who are the human rights legislation is designed to protect. And usually it's because the company never really took the time to assess their policies, never took the time to think about whether there could be any kind of accommodation, the response usually is, that's the way we've always done it. So if it's a matter of insisting that people come into the workplace instead of working from home, if it's insisting that they work a nine to five shift as opposed to eight to four or 10 to six, or insisting that they work on weekends, the reality is that many companies will just say, that's the way it works and we can't hire you if you can't do that. Uh, so message for today, first of all, hopefully it goes without saying that you're not deliberately discriminating on the basis of grounds like gender, race, uh, sexual orientation, et cetera. That's not only unlawful, it's immoral, so that shouldn't be happening anymore. Um, but more importantly, if you're an employer, make sure that you are not indirectly or inadvertently creating barriers that have the same result. I'm gonna encourage all employers to review your hiring practices, hiring policies, and hiring requirements, and assess whether they are legitimate in the context of society in 2019 assess whether exceptions or accommodations can be made for those people who need it. So even though you might require that everyone come into work and be physically present in the office, if someone is physically unable to, can you allow them to work from home temporarily, permanently, or would that really be undue hardship? Remember that the standard for undue hardship is it's a pretty high threshold and you're gonna be on the hook for proving that undue hardship exists. Remember as well that even if the prohibited ground or protected ground under human rights legislation is a tiny part of the reason why you made your decision not to hire someone or to terminate someone, that's a breach of the human rights code. Best example is actually a termination case from a couple of years ago now, where a company had an individual who was documented in performing 
horribly, didn't meet any expectations, was warned, was coached, was given training, was told if you don't improve your performance, you're going to lose your job. Uh, the problem is what led to the termination in that case was him asking for a religious holiday as a day off, being told, no, you can't have it, and taking the day anyway, and then he was fired. And he brought that to the Human Rights Tribunal, and the company said, no, we didn't fire him because of that. We had he was a horrible employee. His performance was terrible. We warned him. We documented it. We gave him time to improve. He didn't. Therefore, we let him go. And what the tri tribunal found essentially was that, yeah, there were very legitimate business reasons for letting him go. But the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, was him asking for a religious holiday, being turned down and taking it anyways, which is obviously related to a human rights ground. And therefore, that was a part of the reason for termination. Therefore, there is no partial breach. It's all or nothing. And in that case, there was a breach. The company was on the hook for damages. So we see companies spending a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of resources defending human rights claims because they never took the time to assess their policies and think about whether it may be inadvertently breaching someone's human rights. So I'll encourage everyone to review their policies now. If you're not sure about any of this, if you're an employer, you're not sure if your policies or your procedures or your requirements are defensible, give us a call. If you're an employee or an applicant and you think your human rights have been breached, don't just let it go. Give us a call. As I always say now in our Fire Away episodes, if you think you might need an employment lawyer, you probably do. So don't reach out to, uh, to don't hesitate to reach out and contact us. Bottom line is in 2019, this type of discrimination shouldn't be taking place. That's my two cents worth and you got it here for free. So that's all the time we have for season two, episode four of Fire Away. I want to thank Christina Guida for joining me again for a really good discussion on work permits, immig immigrants, and how it impacts uh, the workplace. Because as I said at the outset of the show, we often have some knowledge of what you require, but we often don't really understand what the nuances. And that's when you go to someone like Christina, who, who clearly does. Uh, so thank you for joining me again, Christina. Next episode is going to air on June 18th, and I'll be joined by Dan McGarry. Dan is a senior HR practitioner with tremendous knowledge and experience and strategies when it comes to employment laws. Uh, we're going to be talking about the recent story about a city of Hamilton employee who was found to be a former leader of a white supremacist group and talking more broadly about what can you as an employer do if you find out that one of your employees is in a situation like that, posting online that is clearly inappropriate, etc. How do you handle that as an employer? So we're going to talk about strategies in that context. Should be a great discussion. I know Dan and I always have really good discussions on some of the more contentious points. If you have any questions about today's show or any suggestions for future topics, please give us or send us an email at info at runnerlaw.ca. Remember the past episodes can always be found online on our YouTube channel, Facebook page, um, and also please like our pages so you'll get notifications when the episodes are live. Uh, keep in touch with us. I know the episodes air once a month, but keep in touch with us throughout the month. Check out our blog, check out our social media, sign up for our newsletter to get notifications. But please remember that none of that replaces legal advice. As I always say, if you think you might need an employment lawyer, you probably do. So feel free to give us a call. Let us know if we can help you. And before I sign off, I do want to make one personal appeal. My family and I have been walking to cure diabetes for the last 15 years. It's a an issue or a cause that is very near and dear to our hearts. And uh, the walk takes takes place in about three weeks. So I will ask all of you to consider supporting our cause. Doesn't doesn't matter how much, any amount helps because I don't, although there's been a lot of advances, there still is no cure. And I'm hoping for my nephew and for everybody else who has diabetes that a cure will be found soon. So please check out the webpage if you can't. It's on, on the screen in the show notes. 
Um, but feel free to email me. I'll be happy to, to uh, send you a link. And um, thanks once again to Rob, as always, for producing, to Mark, to Rebecca. And thanks for tuning in. See you next time.